Hello, everyone. Welcome and a big welcome to the first reading club of the 2022 series. We're very excited to get started on this. It'll be a year long exploration of some of the most important themes today. Uh, and we'll be doing that th through exploring various different readings. It's Thursday, the 27th of January. I'm Alex Hochuli here with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe as usual. Now, most of you will know this, um, but the reading club is exclusively for tier two patrons which is to say those subscribing for $10 a month. Uh, and those people also get access to two regular paywalled episodes a month, same as the $5 subscribers, uh, which include regular guests, extended interviews, in-depth explorations of a topic, and our three articles on current affairs and alpha bonus bonus, in which we respond to your questions and criticisms. If you're not a $10 subscriber, what you're hearing here is an extended excerpt of this first reading club of 2022, of the revamped reading club. So you're going to get the first 30 minutes or so, that is to say the first half or so of this. Um, so you can see what it's about now in this first session of the year and decide if you want to be on board for the rest of it. We've had lots of people wanting to set up local reading clubs to follow along and meet up uh, in real life uh, with listeners to discuss the readings. So uh, as far as I'm aware, there are healthy groups already going on in London, Stockholm, Dublin, Berlin, and Portland, Oregon. But people have come forward looking for other listeners in uh, the following locations, which I'm just about to read in a second. Get in touch with us at info at bungacast.com if you want to be put in touch with other Bunga listeners and form a local reading club where you are. But here, So here's the full list. Uh, in North America, Chicago, LA, uh, Boston, and New England, Southern New England area, New York, Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, San Francisco in the Bay Area, Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. And then in Europe, Amsterdam, Berlin, Dublin, Groningen, Leipzig, London, Milan, Munich, Stockholm, Tallinn, and uh, Yorkshire or Northeast England. We've already got lots of questions from you. We've got questions from uh, reading club, local reading clubs as well, which have kind of condensed questions. And that's great. Thank you very much for those. Uh, and it's also really important for us as it helps us sharpen our own thinking about these matters. Um, so we're very excited to get started on this first one. We hope uh, if you haven't joined us, you'll join us for the next ones. And I'm going to give a brief overview now to give you a sense of what's actually in it um, before we actually start discussing the matter at hand. And I'll hand over to Phil in just a second. So. Um, you may have seen on social media and elsewhere, we've posted the syllabus for 2022, and it's arranged around three themes. The first is emergency politics and control, um, obviously in response to the pandemic and the extraordinary measures taken, but also around trying to understand the role that fear plays in the history of this, how the war on terror perhaps laid the ground for the current uh, state of affairs, and look at how emergency politics may develop in the future. Should we be in favor of certain form of emergency politics or not? These are already questions that we're gonna broach uh, in this episode, and we'll carry on discussing them over the course of the first half of the year, because from January to June, we'll be discussing these thinkers like Carl Schmitt today, Giorgio Agamben, um, two different thinkers on the politics of fear, uh, Michel Foucault, and then uh, finally, the last one on climate emergency. We've got two uh, thinkers on that. The notion of a kind of risk society is something that in some ways ties this together. And by chance, one of the main thinkers of risk society will be encountered in the second section. That is to say, Anthony Giddens will be looking specifically at his work on trust in the context of a theme on cynical ideology. 
of course, we'll be starting with Slavoj Žižek, uh, where he ad he addresses that in his first major work very deliberately, um, and also looking at one particular form in which cynicism perhaps applies, which is a conspiracy theory, which is a, a skepticism taken to a sort of paranoid conclusion. And we'll try to uh, see if we can unpick and, and make a distinction between skepticism and paranoia. Uh, and finally, we're going to finish off the year. Uh, the last three sessions will be on the now, I, I think, kind of much discussed theme of neo, neo or techno feudalism, and the idea that capitalism is mutating into something beyond capitalism, something probably worse. Um, so we'll be discussing specifically neo feudalism and then also looking at new forms of domination through technology, the role of platform capitalism, of artificial intelligence, and so on, uh, and also looking at class, at how um, the coming apart of, I guess, what would be called the sort of Fordist compact of the mid-20th century has led to a new form of maybe proletariat, which is more um, atomized than ever before. So in looking at all three of these themes, I think you can probably see that they, the first one deals really with uh, questions of the state and power, the second with ideology, and the third with political economy. But there's a whole range of different approaches um, from sociology, philosophy, psychoanalysis, political theory, and political science across all of these. So um, it's a very big mix. But there's also additional readings which we provide, which we'll try to draw upon as we go forward. Um, so anyway, that's the reading club. I hope you'll join us. Um, again, for any more information, info at bungacast.com. And I'm going to pass over to Phil, um, because Phil is the person who's going to be running, I think, the majority of the first group of sessions, the first theme. Uh, I'll be doing the second uh, section on cynical ideology, and George will be responsible for the third one on techno-feudalism. So anyway, without further ado, Phil, uh, tell us about emergency politics and then about Carl Schmidt. Yeah, well, I hope none, none of the listeners missed it. But uh, we've been ruled through emergency, at least for the last few years, if not before, um, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, um, and especially in um, wealthy, uh, strangely enough, I suppose, in one respect, this, this has been especially true in the wealthiest, richest states, the most powerful countries in the world, which is to say Western states, um, rather than say where states of emergency are usually kind of or historically perhaps understood as the um, the difficulties encountered by banana republics in the last few years, or at least as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, um, our governments have been ruling through de facto or explicit states of emergency. This is what motivates the theme for this reading, this aspect of the syllabus and this aspect of the reading club. And this is what takes us to Carl Schmidt specifically. So he's a German political thinker from who mainly wrote in the first part of the 20th century. And the reason to think about Carl Schmidt was because he's been a thinker who has been revived um, in recent years and is very familiar to academic debates, um, scholarly debates and academic debates on questions of emergency rule, the rationalization for state power, the justification for state power, especially in times of emergency. And this is particularly interesting, I suppose, because it also forces us to think about rule through emergency that goes that started before the pandemic, because really Carl Schmidt came into vogue intellectually um, and was the thinker that was used to think about the role of emergency with the in the aftermath of 9-11. So Schmidt 
someone who was revived intellectually in order to think about the stakes of emergency rule in that context. And it seems to me interesting to go back and think about some of the thinkers who were the core thinkers around the war on terror. So specifically Giorgio Agamben and Carl Schmitt. So the choice um, for the reading is his book, Political Theology, four chapters on the concept of sovereignty, which is um, the text for, um, for this reading club. And before we get stuck into this rather unusual set of essays on the idea of sovereignty and think a bit more about what Schmidt might help us understand about emergency rule, I also wanted to provide a bit of the background and context, both for the reception of Schmidt more recently, but also for Schmidt's original context. Now, usually when Schmidt is introduced um, uh, to be discussed in a particular, um, particularly in the postmodern academy, there's always very easily detected the thrill of transgression when the academic lecturer will tell you that um, Schmidt was a Nazi. And there is, I think, part of the fascination that he exerts over liberal over particularly liberal and um, various kind of postmodern thinkers to whom Schmidt has been so appealing in the last 20 years is the fact of his um, having kind of staked an explicit political position and embodying a political pole against which um, the left, the liberal left and the postmodern academy in particular have defined themselves against. So there is a kind of a vicarious, I think, fascination with authoritarianism that is um, refracted through the broad intellectual interest in Schmidt, um, particularly in the wake of the in the wake of the terror attacks of 2001. So Schmidt is he was a member of the Nazi party in the 1930s and had the famously, I mean, the cliche about Schmidt is that he was called the crown jurist of the Third Reich because he was um, one of the leading constitutional legal theorists of, Weim of the Weimar Republic who plumped to went with the Nazis um, and in particular provided a legal rationale or sought to provide a legal rationale for the Night of the Long Knives when Hitler eliminated um, his left-wing competition in in the Nazi party. And who did Hitler eliminate during the Night of the Long Knives? Alex and George, this, you should both know this. The SA? Yeah, the SA. And particularly, who did he eliminate? The DSA. <laughs> I thought you said Alex. <laughs> Another DSA. Come on, you guys should know this. Who did, what was the, how, who did Hitler eliminate in the Night of the Long Knives? Don't, 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 don't do this. Strasser? This is your, your yes. Strasser. Gregor yeah, Strasser. So. Yes, exactly. <sighs> what was interesting about that was, right, that it was kind of the use of um, the discretionary use of power by the state without even going through any kind of, of any judicial or juridical forms in order to justify that use of power. So in contrast to, say, the Stalinist show trials that would happen later in the 30s, where there was still the going through the forms of admitting guilt, um, this was a justification of the arbitrary use of state power without even the pretense of attributing individual responsibility, um, trying to justify the use of state power through identifying guilt through people admitting their responsibility. It was simply an executive decision um, by the leader to exercise state power against those who had been identified as enemies. Beyond that, though, um, there'll usually be the way, you know, Schmidt will be defended by saying, oh, well, he was also kind of he fell out of favor with the regime and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the truth is he was um, 
if not a fully full-blown Nazi thinker, a, de a deeply authoritarian thinker. And I think this comes through in this text, which, um, as will become apparent um, when we particularly get to talking about the latter chapters of the book. So why was Schmidt so, why did Schmidt seem so appealing in the aftermath of the war on terror? And the reasons for that, I mean, is, you know, fairly obvious. But in this era of unipolar American hegemony, um, and particularly in a post, what appeared to be a post-political era, in which liberal democracy was um, overwhelmingly not only the kind of the dominant ideology, but also the idea of technocratic centrism, of democratic deliberation as the model, that Schmidt became a way to critique that era. And in particularly, I think, and this was also important for the academic left, he became a way to critique American power and liberal democracy, which didn't require them to rely on Marxist critiques, and especially um, Marxist or Leninist critiques of mm -hmm. imperialism. And so Schmidt was rehabilitated in, in that context. But also in the year of the war on terror, you had obviously the black sites, you had the um, use of the American military base in Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, as a site of extrajudicial punishment for those who the American state had identified as terrorists. You had the, the legal, um, the express legal justification given through the US presidency for torture, as well as the erosion of international and um, domestic norms around prohibition on torture, the establishment of other black sites around the world where terrorist suspects were also tortured um, and disappeared um, through the um, by the American state and its local allies, as well as the rolling campaign of global assassinations by drones, which again was the extrajudicial use of state power. Um, without being rooted through any kind of even formal kind of um, legal procedures or juridical forms. So all of this was part of the reason um, that Schmidt became his understanding of the use of power outside of the mediating forms of and, and uh, legal juridical forms of political power was why he seemed, why he was uh, so drawn on in this period. So um, that hopefully provides some context and background, both for Schmidt in his in the period in which he was writing, but also why he was rehabilitated towards the end of the 20th century and into the early 21st. Strikingly, he has not really been talked about in the context of the pandemic. So he was talked about in the context of the Trump presidency that, again, left wing academics brought up Schmidt to say that um, Trump was grasping towards the Schmittian vision of leadership with his populist demagogy and his attempt to kind of ident talking about the enemies of the people, his demagogic um, opposition and criticisms and so on. Um, but he hasn't been used in reference to the pandemic when we've actually had rule by emergency for the last couple of years, despite the fact that we didn't actually have rule by emergency under Trump. So did you guys have any general thoughts to kick us off before we get into our specific discussion points? Yeah, just just a, another bit of context. This, um, <clears throat> you know, another thing that Schmidt's famous for is the friend-enemy distinction being the basis of um, basis of politics. This is something which is quite, which has, you know, in the past um, few few decades, a couple of decades, been been relatively um, widely talked about. This idea that it's an it's an us them. It's a it's a kind of a in some ways does bear some similarities to the, the decisionistic kind of account of sovereignty that he gives in in this book political theology um you yeah, know the, the idea that the, the the political like them that 
particular sphere of life is is basically based on essentially an identity um distinction which can be decided on and constructed in a number of different ways but yeah no so i mean um you know a thinker who has uh you know some some appeal across the political spectrum for for different reasons but yeah no i think this was a good a great book to, to kick things things off with um quite a quite a short one good to start with a short one but but complex and uh and dense so a lot to get our teeth into yeah i have a lot of general thoughts but um yeah we Ones can that aren't platitudes <laughs> it was yeah it was a short book it was nice to read <laughs> i think that's you know you have to start with the material object of of the book um but yeah no i mean let's let, let's get into the into the argument of it yeah i mean yeah. i i on the friend enemy distinction that's probably where i've most popularly uh, commonly encountered um schmidt and kind of popular discussions um but yeah used in many ways to justify being political in contrast to kind of consensus politics but it is a double-edged sword i think to yield because that friend enemy distinction suggests the obliteration of the enemy and it doesn't really necessarily um lead to any transformation of yourself you know, whatever that collective self might be. So it, it's kind of not the same as Marxism. It's a kind of a vulgar idea of Marxism of um, the proletariat abolishing the, you know, destroying, fully destroying the bourgeoisie in a civil war, but no real sense of moving to a higher plane of history. So I think that's where it's tricky. And maybe we'll end up coming back to that. On the book itself, I was struck by how clearly written it was. I don't know if that's credit to the translator or if that's true to um, Schmidt's own writing style in German um, with some very clear declarations at the start of each chapter, which are really useful for getting your teeth into because it's right up there, right at the front. You know, the point about exception, um, that he who decides exception uh, is sovereign, is right up at the top. But as you go through it, I found it personally one of the more difficult texts to read that I've read in a long time in terms of really understanding what was at stake as he goes through discussions of different jurists. Uh, And personally, I only found it was in the last section where he discussed his kind of Catholic reactionaries, the, the, what the political actually is, um, and his criticisms of sort of um, the sort of technical bureaucratic state uh, in the 20, you know, it, already emerging at his time, that I kind of was able to really get my teeth into, yeah, what was what it was about and what was at stake. Um, so I don't know, maybe you guys will be able yeah. to <laughs> make it obvious to me what what I should have been taking from the early chapters. Well, we always we always do that for you, Alex. So it's fine. Mm. We'll be happy to do it on this occasion as well. Um, I think it's interesting. The other point that George reminded me of when he talks about the appeal of Schmidt, um, that is always the way it's framed, like defend the defensive formulation in trying to justify um, why study this Nazi is, oh, well, Schmidt also had, you know, has appeal on the left. And like I say, this, I think, is it's he has appeal to the post-Marxist left, um, particularly, like I say, because he allowed them to do a critique of liberalism in a very particular way. And I think it's important because it also, so I mean, he was rehabilitated by the post-Marxist kind of theorists of populism, in particular Chantal Mouffe, who was um, the one who made significant efforts even in even before the war on terror to use the idea of Schmittian kind of identity politics, this radical polarization between friend and enemy as the basis of political struggle. She used it as a way to kind as a battering ram against all the consensual models of liberalism and liberative democracy that were all in vogue in political theory in um, over the 1990s. 
So I think that's important as well. His reception on the left is um, is significant. And one more point, I suppose, contextual point, which is, um, and this is, I think, important with respect to how far he was a Nazi. So what Otto Kirchheimer, who is the one of the great, um, one of uh, Schmidt's great opponents in the Weimar Republic and was um, a Marxist legal theorist, he said, and I think this is important also because it helps us better understand Schmidt, he said that Schmidt wasn't, in terms of Schmidt's theory, whatever his political commitments, because he was a card-carrying member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, but that in terms of his theory wasn't Nazi, because his theory, what he didn't understand, and this is what made him suspect ultimately to the Nazis, and which is what made him fall out of favor with the regime after 1936, what he didn't understand was the role of the party. So that more than the state, what mattered to the Nazis was um, loyalty to the Nazi party itself, and rather than loyalty to the state. So to that extent, Schmidt was a more traditional conservative thinker in terms of his attempt to justify state power, whereas the Nazis were more interested in, were suspicious and hostile to the state, even though they needed to capture it, but they, what Schmidt couldn't understand was loyalty to the party. And this so, is what made him a suspect figure. No, that's a good point, because I don't think the party appears at all in this this book, but clearly the sovereignty and the state are tied really closely together. Yeah. So yeah, that was, thanks. That was a very informative contextual point. So this takes us to, I mean, this also justifies, I think, why he is worth looking at, despite the, because if he was a Nazi, you know, Nazi political theory, I think, I mean, what would it be? It would just be, you know, kind of Darwinism transplanted to the political field. Mm. Um, there's no real meaning, you know, to politics, except that it's just the expression of a biological racial struggle. And there isn't anything there to discuss. It's just biology. So to the extent that Schmidt isn't a Nazi, but rather a kind of a conservative authoritarian, and that comes across in this book, then he is worth thinking his attempt to justify state power is worth thinking about and thinking through. Which takes us to our first question, or at least the first thing I wanted to raise to think about, which is why are people scared of sovereignty? Because this is what is fascinating about Schmidt, I think, particularly for um, the liberal left, again, is um, because his focus isn't about justifying state power exactly, right? But it's about sovereignty. He's about trying to justify sovereignty. And people, and this is very evident, I think, particularly from the British vantage point, given that we've been through Brexit in the last few years, it's not that the people who were opposed to Brexit, they weren't afraid of state power. And I were as was evidenced in the lockdown, so many opponents of Brexit were happy to support the most extreme forms of um, state power in terms of the swinging public restrictions, unprecedented sweeping away of civil liberties in the coronavirus um, with the coronavirus legislation. So they weren't afraid of state power, but they were afraid of sovereignty. So I thought just to set the context, not to set the context, but to get us going, what is it about sovereignty that exerts such kind of um, horror and fascination? In it, yeah, yeah. and those who are skeptical of it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's got a it's got a kind of monarchical ring to it. The, the word itself, obviously, close to sovereign. So that might be a, you know, the fear of the <clears throat> the scepter and that that orb thing. I can't remember what it's called now. It might just be called the orb that the um, that the sovereign, at least in this country, has. But no, I think for for me, it's like the part. At least part of it must be to do with the concentration or the absolute nature of 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 the power that the sovereign has and that sovereignty expresses because you know that is that is completely opposed to the liberal tradition of 
dividing power of pluralism, checks and balances, and and a whole set of uh, government to defend the individual against the tyranny of the majority. I mean, I guess it, you know, that would be my kind of crude psycho political explanation that it's ultimately the fear of the, you know, the masses or the the majority or the people um, that's carried through to the, the fear of sovereignty, because that's where the, you know, sovereignty makes it very clear. Well, as we will discuss, I guess, not in every case, but popularly evoked sovereignty is, is related to, um, to, to, to the people. And that is a, you know, potentially a frightening uh, thing to have to manage and have to deal with if you're, um, you know, if you're not that, that way politically inclined. I suppose, yeah, go on, Alex. Well, I mean, I related to that, I think that one of the reasons we're scared of sovereignty, I mean, I say we as a sort of collective we that that um, publics today Speak are scared for yourself. of sovereignty, um, <laughs> is that uh, we're too democratic. Now, I mean that in a very specific sense, that post that democracy in the sense of a sort of postmodern habitus, right, of, of a place where um, society is individualistic and pluralistic, and where there can be no final determination. So you're free to explore yourself and no one can tell you what to think. No one can tell you that they're better than you. There is no, um, you know, that we're completely post-deferential society. And so the idea that someone might try to impose something on you, that there might be restrictions on who you can be, you know, the full self, the fully free self-determining subject is completely anathema to today. Now, I mean that in a very narcissistic sense, right, that you are free to self-determine and the appeal, even, for example, the traditional workplace is seen as problematic because it's too hierarchical. Everyone wants to be self-employed, whether it's to run your own business and be the boss or to just be self-employed freelance. And so even the appeal of something like Uber is that um, however onerous the conditions and all the rest of it and the lack of actual autonomy that you have, it gives this a notion that you are free to decide when to get in your car, turn on the app and pick up passengers. Um, And so that kind of sense of democracy that I think we generally have a very democratic culture today, not in the sense of popular power, but in the sense of um, having no one dominate you and have no one be seen as culturally better than you, right? That we're kind of all strongly against any form of cultural elitism. Uh, in that sense, that that everything is that everyone is kind of an equal, separate individual, um, and I think to to just to refer to the text, um, that is the opposite of any kind of final determination that sovereignty implies. In the last chapter, um, Schmidt is quite open about this in in reference to this. Uh, Catholic reactionary Donoso Cortes, who sounds like a barrel of laughs, by the way. <laughs> I love that bit. Just the descriptions of him, like, wow, this guy is this guy's heavy. <laughs> this guy's like a real Catholic reactionary who is just like humans are fucking terrible. Anyway, they don't um, make they don't make them like that anymore. No, do they? they don't. They really don't. Um, but well, you know, he refers. Well, he refers. Maybe he, greens, but. Yeah, well, not the, yeah, not the same. But anyway, Schmidt refers to the to 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 uh, rather Cortes, the bourgeoisie as a disgusting class, una clase discutidora. Um, so it, this definition contains the class characteristic of wanting to evade the decision, a class that shifts all political activity onto the plane of conversation in the press and in parliament, um, which would be no match for social conflict. Um, and just a few uh, little bit later on, he says. 
um, that this the, the bourgeoisie, it wanted neither the sovereignty of the king nor that of the people. What did it actually want? It, what it wants is endless discussion, um, no final decision ever to be taken. And I think here that, that you have the two different things um, combined today, where you have the fear of the decision, the kind of traditional bourgeois feel of fear of the decision, um, with a kind of postmodern fear of any determination. I can be freely self-determining as a as myself individually. Um, when I go to the voting booth, that is not a public moment. That is me in the confessional booth expressing my my true desires and true feelings and beliefs uh, that I have come up with entirely on my own. Um, and so that kind of narcissistic individualism, I think, meets that bourge, more traditional bourgeois fear of uh, decision in this resistance or hatred of, of sovereignty, of any kind of final determination. So you're saying that the bourgeoisie is the disgusting, not disgusting, but disgusting class. They're scared of sovereignty because it means the end of the conversation. The discussion is over. Eff effectively, but yeah, that yeah. there's... Yeah. Mm. So I mean, there's there's another. But, but, but the postmodern, but the postmodern self doesn't want any discussion because even debating mm. means imposing yourself on another person, and you know it's like no, that's just my opinion. You cannot, you know, the the, the postmodern subjectivism that we have today, where even debating someone or saying that they're wrong is like no, this is a, a, an entire offense to myself and who I've decided yeah. to be. There's, I mean, there's a there's another reason why we might be scared of sovereignty, and that's the sort of we 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 should be to the extent that. You know, it's like the Leviathan, the big, the big guy in in Hobbes, who's guy. made up of all, who's made up of all the little guys. Um, that to to a certain extent, that there is an awesome kind of collective power, like that's expressed through the idea of sovereignty. So maybe that kind of there should be a bit of uh, you know, or is fear and love or whatever. You know, the awesome power of the of the Leviathan, the sovereign. It's maybe it's the appropriate. No one, um, but no one wants reaction. the sublime. No one wants the sublime of of uh, you know sovereign authority. It's, it's. I think that's right. And you raise an interesting point, Alex, about the discussing. You know, the classical kind of classical nineteenth century model of the bourgeoisie is the discussing class, whether or not that fits, given um, the general kind of fear and hostility, or the um, insistence on controlling public debate that seems to be so such an important part of liberalism. Um, today and whether so that that kind of classical model of liberalism on that that idea of the discussion the parliamentary kind of um, parliamentary debate is the highest form of kind of political activity um yeah it's gone and i guess that that is an interesting you know that's an interesting point with respect to characterizing liberalism today but it does you know at the same time there is also the liberal kind of fixation with power um but not sovereignty and i guess that's what that's what's fascinating to me. I mean, you think about kind of um, liberal reverence for um, liberal reverence for, I don't know, NATO, for instance. NATO is um, the kind of the ultimate um, humanitarian protector. Or you see the way liberals kind of are demanding, you know, kind of um, demanding brinkmanship from America at the moment in Ukraine. Um, risking the possibility of a great power standoff, maybe, you know, even kind of obviously elevating the risks of stumbling into a nuclear war. Um, so there is, you couldn't accuse liberals of being um, indifferent to power, I think, but they are hostile to sovereignty. And that's the difference. And I guess kind of uh, perhaps drawing out what both of you are saying, I mean, the resistance, I guess, is to authority. It's to the idea of supreme supreme concentrated political authority 
that isn't um, the authority of the expert, isn't the authority of the judge, but rather the authority of um, the pure kind of that idea of pure collective political power. Wow. Um, and, you know, to, to, to take it back to the um, Todd McGowan book, like that, or like in the modern era, that authority ultimately has to be has to be us. And that is kind of frightening. You know, that old Sartre point, like, you know, you know you're really afraid of freedom. You're really afraid of having to take authority, um, an authoritative position and take responsibility for for your life individually and collectively. It's quite vert- vert- vertigo inducing freedom. So I guess then that moves us to the question of how Schmidt defines sovereignty. What is, I guess, in the significance of his definition of sovereignty? Because this is the definition of sovereignty that has drawn so many um, commentators and analysts and theorists to him. All right, that's the end of this extended excerpt of the first Reading Club of the year. If you'd like to hear the rest of it and gain access to future monthly Reading Clubs, head over to patreon.com slash bungacast. See you there.